As I have just said in our own ancient 5,000-year-old language, I'm very grateful for that warm uh, reception. Yes, it is indeed. The, this week is the week of the General Assembly, the week of a great deal of activity at the United Nations. And I'm very pleased to be saying that what I will do formally as President of Ireland at the United Nations is wedged between two university lecturers, this one this evening, on responding to the interacting crises of our times, ecology, economy and society, and a lecture I would give at Fordham University on the role of public intellectuals at a time of humanitarian crisis. I think the President referred to those very early years when I came to the United States first. But before I take up a point he makes, I must just say I, I do want to thank Dr. Andrew Hamilton, President of New York University, for his warm, warm words and great welcome. Uh, Professor Kevin Kenny, Professor of History and Glucksman, Professor in Irish Studies at NYU, and I so wish him well uh, in the new responsibilities that is undertaken, as well as Mrs. Lynn Brown, Senior Vice President for University Relations and Public Affairs, also of New York University, who is very helpful in arranging this lecture. And of course, it always gives Sabina and I, it gives me personal pleasure to meet and see here Loretta B. Glucksman, Chairperson of the American Ireland Fund, who is a dear friend of Ireland, and indeed, I'm privileged I was a friend myself, who's co-hosting this evening's event. It is true that I very much enjoy returning to an academic environment, having been a university teacher for the greater part of my career, a position that was, for me, so very rewarding intellectually and morally, and I did enriching. And it was in 1966 that I made my very first visit to the United States. It was as a postgraduate student to Indiana University to be part of the Indianapolis Area Project at Indiana University at Bloomington, Indiana. I arrived in New York and traveled by Greyhound bus, arriving inconveniently on the campus on a Sunday when everything was closed. But I think, when I think back to the excitement of all of that, it was an excitement to be a recipient of a postgraduate opportunity, to have access to a vast array of books, journals, contemporary published work. And I was, and so, I'm so grateful uh, for that opportunity that I was given. I was coming from a university system where one had to fill out a blue form and wait several weeks for a journal article, and one had forgotten why we wanted it in the first place, <laughs> whether it had come. But I think, when I think back on it all, it was also a period when the United States was adjusting itself and from, I thought myself, making its way uh, out of forms of racism 
uh, as well. One travelling in the Greyhound bus, it was a very good experience of, of that. Uh, and also, where I, where I was going uh, uh, to the Midwest. I think, as well, the Vietnam War was underway, and if you were a teaching assistant, which I would be t uh, as well, uh, a student's draft status was changed if they got less than a C, which gave, uh, created moral problems in relation to marking. <laughs> <coughs> well, I think, why was I there? I was there because the subject sociology was beginning to arrive in, in Ireland in many other countries. It's around that time, 1966 in Ireland, a report of Dr. Fries had suggested the setting up of the, a research institute. But the big issue was, what were the, the universities to do? And I was one of the very earliest recruits, I would become in time, one of the very earliest recruits to the founding of sociology. But why, what was that atmosphere like? I think around that time, some articles were appearing from Orlando Falls Border, who would go on to make such a significant contribution to social theory and social justice in Colombia. But I think, too, in the social sciences, young students like myself from abroad were encouraged to come and concentrate on development theory, pillared as it was on the founding texts, those six great texts, the Princeton studies of Almond and Verban, of Huntington and Lucien Paul, Pye and McClelland and others. <clears throat> Through this culturally ethnocentric, linear and reductionist prism, one was invited to study the sources of one's people's backwardness, their cultural and human, the cultural and human impediments that were standing there towards their participating in modernity, in economic growth and development. McClellan's book, I remember, he had a measure called inac achievement level, in which you could measure people on the precise degree of their impediment to being available for development. It, there was a sophisticated version of this, a spectrum that ran from backwardness, defined as an agriculturally based economy, a rural society, authoritarian structures which were assumed to go along with rural life, low achievement orientation, thank you Professor McClelland, traditionally oriented as well rather than modernity oriented, and at the other end of the spectrum was the developed status of industrialized, urbanized, high achievement orientation, individualized decisions, a culture that was monetized, consumer-driven, and open to modernity in every way. Such simplicities as they appear now in that kind of binary division might have people say, wasn't this ridiculous? It was the dominating paradigm, not only here, but elsewhere. And indeed, that is why we were here to learn. And I think at that time, in those years, I remember Orlando Falls Border writing the first essay about the ideological classes of North Americans studying South America. 
I would later go on to teach and um, study in an area that was referred to sociology, kind of an offshoot of criminology, the study of what was then called deviant behaviour. And I think when I was thinking of this in many, many ways, the structural functionalism, theoretically, and with its method, which was so limiting in many cases, meant that Orlando Falsboda would describe revolutionary priests, people who believed in, like Lisa de los Pobres and others in his country, as deviants and so forth, who were in fact actually people working in the base of the society, del Basso, trying to create an opportunity for people for empowerment and for control of their own lives. But it was this interesting thing that tells us something, a point to which I'll come later, and that is how a dominant paradigm, by which I mean paradigm, set of dominating assumptions or ideas which are directing one's work, how it could come to have such an effect in exactly the same way as I want to suggest that little aberration for neoclassical economics the neoliberal paradigm has had today in relation to economic theory, policy and practice. <clears throat> I think it took decades for that thinking to be replaced by theories that might have been based originally, I think, on uneven development, dependency theory, or certainly not any of the structural theories as to the sources of imbalance and trade <coughs> in trade, debt, aid, or of the abuse by multinationals, for example, of, uh, of extractive industries. See, Wright Mills at this stage was regarded as a really wild person that you couldn't be caught reading, really. <laughs> and then there were in the universities themselves uh, the, his wonderful work, The Sociological Imagination. And you'll be glad to know we, we were in India, we were in the Midwest after all, there was certainly no danger of a Marxist theorist. <laughs> now, I think it is, and I have said I was grateful, because being a university teacher and being given the opportunity of coming to this wonderful atmosphere of books and libraries and others to discuss one's thinking with was such a great gift. Being a university teacher and researcher, as I would later be, enabled me to, I think, however slowly I did it, to make a, of, a, a critique of the modernization theory assumptions. In between, I would be at Manchester University, where Norman Long would later go on to offer a formalized, devastating critique of modernization theory. In the case of Manchester University, it was interesting. It was a case where British anthropology had either returned, fled, or been sent home from Africa, where it had been studying, where it had a particular view of, instead of studying natives, chosen in cities and whatever. On one occasion, on a Wednesday afternoon, I remember being asked, I was one of the first <coughs> very strange things that they had seen, a person from Ireland in the PhD programme. <laughs> and he said to us, someday, Michael, you must tell us of your own people. <laughs> University is a special place. Indeed, it is a hallowed seat of learning. But even more importantly, it's a potential space of emancipation. For the university experience has the power 
to transform individual lives through the opening of the mind that comes from exposure to good reasoning, teaching, and a shared educational experience. And for many of us from poorer backgrounds, it was too what we saw as a necessary means of escape to the possibilities of fulfillment for ourselves and beyond. Beyond, I think, in its impact on society, it offered a pluralist, empathetic, a pluralist, empathetic university's teaching and research has the wider potential of transforming and enriching societies, stimulating culture, improving the cohesive and inclusive functioning of economies, the introduction of a moral content to their work and their service to society. And universities have a crucial role in helping students to develop their skills and knowledge and thus provide an important basis for a broader and potentially emancipatory understanding of the interconnectedness of our social ecological systems. And it is interesting that this is happening again. For if you think of Paris and you think of the university rights of, the, of 1968, is that 50 years afterwards, in 2018, at the Sorbonne and in Cambridge and in a number of other universities, students were revolting again, not to change society, but to be allowed to actually have a heterodox te teaching in economics. To be allowed to be taught more than the single paradigm. And that is how, again, in many ways, how far we had retreated in terms of intellectual energy. And students must have the space to grow morally and give exercise to an energetic imagination while at university. Yes, to benefit from introduction to the, to the tools of respectful reasoning, but also to retain that contribution that flows from the music of the heart, the curiosities of experience shared, which are university life, which would in time become the sedimentation that would be recalled as memory. It is about so much more than training to make oneself useful and all the neurosis that, carries, that is carried with that. Those values of the university experience to which I've made reference are now I quite realised in so many places being undermined overtly and covertly by the imposition in contemporary circumstances of an extreme compliance with extreme utilitarianism. Universities begging to exist and having to take support from those who do not believe in any of those values of emancipatory scholarship of a university to which I made reference earlier. This week I have travelled to the United States as President of Ireland, to address the United Nations 74th session of the General Assembly and to open a United Nations summit of small island developing states which Ireland co-hosts with Fiji. A range of important summits too are taking place in the United Nations, including summits on climate action, finance for developing countries, health and the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. It is in preparing my remarks for these that has led me to reflect back through my teaching, writing and study, to ask of myself once again 
what the connection might be between what I was hearing of new challenges and what universities are now doing in terms of teaching and research and what their contribution might best be. Such events at the United Nations as those to which I've just referred underscore the importance that attaches to the United Nations and the multilateral system. And as President of Ireland, may I say, that Ireland attaches the greatest significance to such events as are taking place this week and, of course, to the organisation of the United Nations itself. It is almost 75 years since the founding of the United Nations. And if I might begin my address with a brief reflection as to the United Nations' role in our modern world. As I've said, Ireland believes profoundly in the United Nations. For like the United Nations itself, modern Ireland came out of conditions of conflict. Ireland's escape from a colonial past was long and painful. And thus our history is one which allows us to empathize with so many countries in the United Nations. Like them, our united membership too has shaped our development. There are about a hundred with the same size of population as ourselves or smaller. But the sense of a shared responsibility through such an institution has guided and continues to guide Ireland's view of the world and informs the part we try to play in it. The world for which we have responsibility is an increasingly an interdependent world. And the global challenges we now face emphasize this as they do not respect any geographical boundaries. It is now a world, too, of shared consequences, where the initiators of actions that have been had destructive consequences on climate are neither likely to be the most prominent or the greatest victims. The United Nations as our single global institution has a central and unique role in tackling the great challenges we face as a global community today. I think that role includes galvanizing multilateral efforts for poverty eradication, quality education, climate action, and social inclusion. And for what we should not have had to wait, the removal of gender violence, the violence against women. The UN as a shared space of discourse and decision making has the power to play an enormously positive, transformative role in the lives of the peoples of the world, and particularly those most vulnerable. Yes, it is an institution that has flaws, and it remains but whatever those flows, it remains the location of our best prospects for responsible intergenerational cooperative discourse and as a source of principled internationalism. <laughs> the founding of the United Nations, we should never remember we should never forget, was greeted with much enthusiasm in 1945. Small membership, its membership at the beginning may have been small, but it would greatly expand, particularly in the periods of decolonization. And hopes were high, 
And people would travel with leaders from Africa and Asia and Latin America because those hopes were high. But in recent times, the United Nations has suffered from a sustained campaign of criticism. Some of it, as I acknowledge, might be fair, but so much more, however, is unjust and comes from an insidious agenda. Those who believe in the United Nations are forever being called upon to find new ways to show that its work is relevant, that what the UN does is making a critical difference to the citizens of the world, most impoverished and unstable countries. And all of this within the context of a competition for new space in the modern soundbite-driven media age of clickbait headlines that feed on shrinking attention spans. We now need for our collective welfare and with a sense for us, with a sense of intergenerational justice in our minds, the emergence and growth of an inclusive, supportive United Nations movement, a movement of global citizens that can deal with these urgent circumstances and contemporary challenges. And it may be useful in this regard to review, draw attention to however briefly at the outset what is indeed shown to have been possible with cooperation, hard work, imagination and patience when shared and on what can be achieved when the peoples represented by the United Nations are united. I suggest that perhaps the greatest manifestation of this unity in recent times is the very positive adoption in 2015 of the Sustainable Development Goals and the 2030 Agenda, as well as a subsequent Paris Agreement on climate change. In both instances... <coughs> In both instances, in the drafting and adoption of these instruments, we see a unified consciousness that flows beyond borders, peoples and their governments from around the world, dealing with global issues. It is built, if you like, on an acceptance that these existential issues require global responses and a spirit of meaningful cooperation in actions taken together. I've word sometimes difficulty words sometimes in using concepts like interdependence, internationalism, and so on. What really we have to think about is an interconnected world that goes beyond trade. There really is so much more morally important to speak about the internationalization of vulnerabilities to speak of vulnerabilities beyond borders that are capable of entering the consciousness. But after, if you like, my reference to 2015, it would be remiss, indeed wrong, of me not to state my profound disappointment at the United States' decision to exit the Paris Agreement. And I do urge the United States government to revisit and reconsider this decision to exit the Paris Agreement, a decision which could take effect from November next year, and indeed to revisit and reconsider their sustained withdrawal from practically all of the United Nations agencies now, including so many of the Failure to take radical, urgent action in relation to climate change that will effectively subject future generations to an existence of threat in an ever more bleak and volatile planet 
and in human terms, one that is likely to lead to the forced displacement of millions of people, including those at the front line in small island developing countries, who will bear the most serious and immediate consequences of that dysfunctional paradigm of connection that really prevails between our current, our current connections in between ecosystem, economic practices, and our ever-deepening inequalities in our societies at home and abroad. At my age, when I think, why did I open my paper about when I was young in Indiana and when I was in my 20s? And why I wanted to speak to what be some students do, to say, don't waste your youth on old and fading and dying paradigms. It is the birth of the new paradigm to which you must give your energy. I think climate change is the most pressing issue facing us all as a global community, as inhabitants of a planet that is in peril, owing to the insatiable unrestricted consumption of the Earth's finite natural resources since the onset of the most intense accelerated period of the Anthropocene, an onset that has so greatly accelerated in recent history. And dangerous shifts in climate are placing stress on communities where ecosystems can no longer support populations, leading to a decline in and ultimate lack of resources for living, which in turn contributes to conflict, violence, and forced migration. And unless we collectively take action to present catastrophic climate change, together with a real commitment and transfer of resources towards assisting communities to prepare for, adapt to changing climates, these population flows driven by climate shifts will take place in a context of old, revived, and emerging new conflicts becoming available to be exploited by extremists. Basic morality suggests that it is indefensible that another 100 million people be doomed to extreme poverty by 2030 should we fail to honour the commitment to tackle climate change. The need for collective action addressing the climate crisis becomes more evident month after month. The recent report of the last year's woman is so there clear for, there for everyone to see. And of course, the defense of previous generations, so often used for so many atrocities, including global poverty, including violences of different kinds that we did not know. That is a defence that will not be available to any of us now in relation to climate change. But we must not forget ever that policies are sourced in assumptions. Ideas as to how economies function are connected with views of change in society, just like those days long ago. Our prevailing neoliberal paradigm of that connection is one that privileges an abstract hegemony of market theory. We have submitted our peoples to an abstraction. It constitutes an ideology that is inter alia in its practices and requirements, opposed to regulation and inimical to an intervening role of the state, even a protective one. This version of economics has dominated policy for almost four decades, 
and has been shown from the perspective of its social outcomes, empirically researched, to have deepened inequality, impacted negatively on the poorest, and also, from an ecological perspective, it makes achieving sustainability near impossible. It is built on an, an assumption, what is now an outrageous an assumption, of accelerated and extended growth. And it leaves existing consumption models unrevised. That is why a radical paradigm shift is required in the connection between ecology, economics, and citizens. The mere placing of any new lens on the existing orthodox model will not suffice. If we are to achieve a paradigm shift, it will be necessary to combine, this is maybe the most important thing I have to say, to combine, if you like, that radicalism that is the consciousness of climate activism with the consciousness of egalitarianism and the program of inclusion actors, activists all around the world. And in an attempt to make a positive contribution, I do want to suggest that all of the prevailing ruling concepts in our present political economy discourse, flexibility, globalization, productivity, innovation, social protection, decent work, they are all capable of being redefined and given a realizable meaning within a new paradigm, and thus given a shared moral resonance, can be made useful within the context of a new ecological social paradigm, such as that being advocated by scholars such as Professor Ian Goff, now of the London School of Economics, Kate Robert of Oxford, Marian Mazzucato, and hosts of others. Their approach offers a new, recovered version of political economy, and I would suggest that all third-level institutions, including New York University, would facilitate it being taught across the social sciences and thus enable such an integrated sustainable paradigm become available in time to inform policy. <coughs> if you said you were interested in eco-social paradigms of, of economics, whatever, I would only say to you, Look at Economics 101 and how it is taught across all the universities of North America. There are less than a dozen teaching 15% of the history of political thought or of economic thought under those courses. They are courses that are within the dying, decaying, dysfunctional paradigm. And it is a waste of one's youth to be submitting to that. Their approach... I think consideration of a new ecological social paradigm based on economic heterodoxy recognises the limits of the world's natural resources as well as the role that unrestrained greed has played in creating the climate crisis. And it is, in my view, a better programme in the syllabus in terms of both heterodox economics, engaged social theory and practice. In his book, Heat, Greed and Human Need, Professor Goff outlines how the alternative paradigm is rooted in the concept of human need over greed. Moving away from models of insatiable consumption, 
unrestricted accumulation being taken as inevitable. The notion that unrestricted accumulation is something that is to be taken as inevitable or unavoidable or indeed as appropriate to be offered to others in other parts of our planet. The paradigm advanced by Professor Goff advocates for gender equality, redistribution and a reconfigured social consumption and crucially for an investment strategy that transfers resources and technology from rich countries to developing countries as some of the key means by which to achieve versions of an eco-social welfare state. The scholarship, if you like, brings these projects together in an int- by an interdisciplinary method and by a shared consciousness. The eco-social policies that underpin such an economic paradigm must in the short to medium term too simultaneously pursue both equity and social justice. It has two, two things at the same time, equity, social justice, and sustainability sufficiency goals within an activist innovation stage with substantial public investment and greater regulation and planning. And furthermore, a transition in equitable terms being so important, socioeconomic measures are also required in the short term and medium term to obviate any adverse or regressive impacts of the ecological transition for lower income groups, such as, for example, unemployment resulting from the closure of legacy industries and to reverse growing levels of inequality. As to society and the social sciences and sociology where it is now, there is a powerful new sociological literature emerging that supports this change in theory, practice, policy and life itself. I think, for example, of the recent work of Professor Hartmut Rosa of Jena and Leipzig University. I think his work in building a paradigm arguing for the need for a society to move away from consuming the world to experiencing it and, as he would put it, resonating with it. For For quality of life cannot be measured simply in terms of resources, opinions and moments of happiness. Instead, we must consider our relationship to our resonance with the world, as Rosa puts it in his book, Resonance, a Sociology of Our Relationships to the World. If I may quote just one piece. From the act of breathing to the adoption of culturally distinct worldviews, all the great crises of modern society, ecological, democratic, psychological, can be understood and analysed in terms of resonance, and our broken relationship to the world around us. And if one takes that in a cross-disciplinary way, even in relation from psychology to touch, to use of all of the senses, how does, as he will later in the book show, what are the sources of alienation and anime? And how often the most wounded person on the street say, I don't belong, and so on. I would like myself to think that Rosa's contribution to the interdisciplinary task of understanding the complex sources are, are ones, as I would put it, of belonging in the world. Or I think 
he has made a significant contribution to his understanding of sociology of belonging. It isn't only about what one material had one was available to, but anyone knows anything about young children and about, for example, about particularly the children poor in poor groups, about what we might call the loss of an access to the world and its significance. I believe that this catastrophe of resonance, if I might quote Hartmut Rosa, which we're witnessing in modern times, is constituted by a growing narcissism, aggressive individualism, and an emphasis on insatiable consumption and wealth accumulation, all of which is such a far cry from the social justice, solidarity, and fairness principles that underpin the framework for the Sustainable Development Goals, and indeed is so contradictory of so many other landmarks, such as the 1944 Declaration of Philadelphia, which resulted in modern labor laws and the International Labor Organization, itself celebrating its centenary year, and with the rights which were so hard fought for over the years. We must never underestimate, I think, the resources of those who will oppose a paradigm shift, such as that of which I speak, to what is sustainable. They are opposed to, to say, for example, to invite people to what is sustainable, redistributive, more inclusive, empathetic, humane. People are not going to rush to such a perspective. They will work hard, many, to oppose it. And those resources are those res <coughs> their resources, those holding large and accountable power. Their resources are immense. They're at times overt, often covert, subtle, sophisticated in their influence and propaganda. In their infiltration of the emancipatory institutions of our world as well, including universities. And I think the opponents of the eco-social movement are not only rich, they're also quite brilliant, adept at recognizing a new instrument or a new piece of language. This has consequences, even as the discourse itself at the United Nations and elsewhere, we've had important concepts, pieces of language stolen. Freedom, for example. Freedom for, to which all of the planets expressed, excluded, and dominated people aspired, has been expressed and reconstituted as freedom of the market. It is not freedom from hunger, avoidable diseases, polluted water sources, but freedom to accumulate without responsibility, regulation or ethics. And what just today we got some extreme lectures on all of this. It is freedom to be greedy. In areas of communications, freedoms of expression itself have given way to a freedom that includes a freedom that allows the achievement of monopoly of ownership in what was previously a public space of discourse, instruments of a public space of discourse. You will remember in its day public service broadcasting and Lord Reith describing it as a nation talking to itself. In recent times, we've even had the concept of sustainability stolen from us. Sustainability of our very existence as a living planet being transacted as a form of 
financial sustainability, denoting something that need not threaten the continuation of multinational enterprises practices. I was at Rio at the United Nations Conference on Economy and Development in 1992, and I saw how the Business Council for Sustainable Development emerged and was given full status by Morris Strong as a participating member up on the platform. Meanwhile, the island and the toll citizens that were affected by sea levels, they were on the Greenpeace boat, other people speaking for their plight. And I remember, too, I heard me say, those who will oppose the eco-social paradigm are not only rich, they're some of them are brilliant. I interviewed the chairman of the Business Council for Sustainable Development. He was the head of Nestle and the vice president as well from Fiat Agnew. I interviewed him, too. And they were brilliant people. And they knew this word sustainable had caught on. We'd better run with it. And they took it and they stole it, and it will happen to other language. And that is why one has to be very, very careful in relation to defending and keeping one's language. In protecting our concepts and language, authenticity should be the test of our words, an authenticity defined in collective achievement rather than any individualized narcissism. Even the word authentic Charles Taylor, philosopher, saying, man's search for authentic life, and so on. And certainly people say, it is that the most self-indulged narcissistic behavior is my search for authenticity. The degradation, it is in that sense that I mention that these words have to be defined, contextualized, so that they're not abused in relation to their delivery, corrupted by the powerful, distorted in presentation for our shared discourse, rendered useless then for us, and thus for our, our hopes for harmony dashed. To achieve the best possible outcomes, too, we will, as will others, benefit from us all respecting the essential courtesies of dialogue, difference, agreement, and debate. And should it not concern us all that our discourses are now once again soured by a hateful and divisive rhetoric. Academics and public intellectuals can have a huge role to play, a critical role in supporting a standard of truth and civility for the current and emerging discourse, giving space to discussion on authenticity of word and deed generally, and specifically on issues such as the appropriate, most inclusive interpretation and response to humanitarian crises, concepts of freedom and sustainability. As I'm coming to this, the second part of what I have to say, I have thought about, again, Professor Rosa raised in his major book, and that is about intellectuals and academics being rendered mute, that is, how people have drifted to a condition of being able to stay silent on these issues, or indeed have been seduced into a cosy consensus that rationalizes the failed paradigm of society and economy, and choose not to see that the distortion of scholarship that is involved in the marginalizing and suppression of critical, even mildly pluralistic teaching, and how thus the possibility of alternative futures 
alternatives in the physical sciences, the social sciences, culture and philosophy are lost. And let us bring philosophy back. Universities face such a great challenge in the questions that are posed now, new existential questions that go much deeper than the previous demands that were made on them in terms of responding to the previous versions of neoliberalism. How often I've heard the presidents of universities across the world say the number of people that they're turning out, just like as if you were growing tomatoes. <coughs> this averting of the gaze, this I think has had and continues to have an impact on the quality of intellectual inquiry and on the public sphere through a limitation of policy options that might address current and future challenges. Now I do realize, however, and I'm happy to acknowledge that the definition of scholar as primarily a funding gatherer and the consequences for universities that has followed has led to universities creating a new precarious, made insecure, denied the stability or collegiality needed for good teaching, research, public engagement. For I do believe that academics have an ethical obligation as an educated elite to take a stand against the increasingly aggressive orthodoxies and discourse of the marketplace that have permeated all aspects of life, including practices within academia. But I do understand the conditions particularly of the younger people. Is it not as important for our students, as well as ourselves, to experience the development of the self with all its agony as well as its joy, and one's connection to citizenship in history, one's resonance, one's resonance and belonging with the world as it is to become a useful unit in a consuming culture? Universities function within a culture, and how they critique, reflect, and negotiate that relationship defines their ethos and output. It is how they will be judged. The role of academics, and particularly those involved in the public sphere, it could be argued, is to seize moments and have the courage to provoke reaction. As Edward Seed put it, the intellectual's mission in life is to advance human freedom and knowledge. This mission will often mean standing outside of society and its institutions, and at times actively disturbing the status quo. It involves placing a strong emphasis on intellectual rigor and ideas, while ensuring that governing authorities and international intermediary organizations are well resourced. Mind work is important. You will not change the world with sentiment. As Immanuel Kant put it many years ago, thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. As to a methodology for change, how do we measure our society, its constituent parts, its exclusions, achievements and failures, and whether we are fair and empirically rigorous is of scholarly, indeed democratic, importance. Recent developments in the global poverty debate is a useful illustration of current practice, including the use and abuse of measurements and interventions. May I offer an example of measuring the reduction of poverty? In October 2015, the World Bank updated an international poverty line, a global absolute minimum, 
to $1 a day. By this measure, the United Nations estimates that the percentage of the global population living in absolute poverty fell from 80% in 1800 to 10% in 2015, thus leaving approximately 734 million people in absolute poverty. You can hear the cheers breaking out. We're winning against global poverty. Now, while this is ostensibly a positive long-term trend, we must be careful not to let a tendentious presentation of such a measure be used for a particular ideological, even insidious purpose. And the so-called new optimists are among those who are not very careful about this. Invoking this measure, they offer a non-contextualized headline as to how we are winning the war on global poverty with the purpose of undermining the inequality discourse and thus advertently or inadvertently rationalize a system that is one of growing inequality and social inclusion. We're winning, so why should we change the system? Capitalism is good. Now the 190 that we've just been quoting, there is an empirical, there is no empirical basis for the 190 poverty line in terms of its ability to satisfy basic human needs. It is arbitrary and meaningless as a measure of global poverty. And people who live just above this line remain appallingly poor, excluded in every respect, with terribly high levels of malnutrition, infant mortality, and low life expectancy. Economist David Woodward calculated that to live at this level of $1.90 would be equivalent to 35 people trying to survive in the United Kingdom on a single minimum wage with no benefits of any kind, no borrowing or savings to draw. In fact, the World Bank, hardly a left-wing institution, has repeatedly stated <coughs> that the $1.90 for them is too low to be used in any but the very poorest countries and should not be used to inform policy. It has itself created new poverty lines for lower middle income countries, $3.20 a day, and upper middle countries, $5.50 a day. So what happens when you use those measures? At these more realistic lines, 2.4 billion people are in poverty every day more than three times higher than the new optimist narrative would have people believe. These narratives of us winning the battle against global poverty have, I repeat too often, the unstated aim of suggesting that we are winning the war against global poverty. The narratives are well funded by foundations, by individual philanthropists, many who are well-meaning, but who are lending themselves to the ideological suggestion that we are winning the war against global poverty under capitalism, so why should we have any structural change? What I have said clearly suggests that we must also redefine those concepts and practices that made up what we have previously called development. For example, turning to the development challenges facing the continent of Africa, a continent in transition, the continent of the young, this is where much of the United Nations concentration will need to be in the decades ahead. The historic underrepresentation from Africa 
needs to be addressed, of course, so that there can be a fair African say in the United Nations Council. Decisions affecting the future of their own continent and our planetary survival together in harmony and within what I like to call a civilization of sufficiency. Offering Africa a repetition of what has failed us is morally indefensible. In practical terms, it is a disaster. We must alternatively make the transfers of technology and resources that will enable Africans to choose their paradigm of sustainability and from their cultures to construct an ideology, consciousness and contemporary version of sufficiency. As to particular challenges, it is so well understood that Africa continues to face huge tasks of reducing poverty, poor education, ill health, violence, hunger and sustainable agriculture. And on matters of economy, access to finance remains a key problem, while overall real economic growth on a sufficiency basis is suboptimal from any development perspective, given its low base of economic activity. I would like to suggest that what is needed now is in effect nothing less than a form of African enlightenment, a paradigm shift similar to those great intellectual paradigm shifts that were brought about from enlightenments in the past, such as that in Europe of the 18th century, which resulted in the authority, which resulted in the authority of the monarchy and the church being challenged, and which went on to pave the way for the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. The ideas that emerged challenged intellectual authoritarianism with hypotheses centred on reason and science as the primary source of knowledge. And ideals such as liberty, progress, tolerance, fraternity, constitutional government and separation of church and state, along with increased questioning of the intellectual consequences of an authoritarian orthodoxy. An attitude captured so well in that phrase, sapere audi, dare to know. An African enlightenment may I suggest, could draw on sources deeper and richer than any European 18th century rationalism, on a diversity of pre-imperialist sources of wisdom, as well, of course, as the energy that will come and that comes from being the continent of the young and our planet. But to enable such a development to occur requires us to rethink development models in Africa, Latin America, Asia and elsewhere and emphasizes the need to seize the possibilities of transformational change and be partners, partners with a listening capacity as we offer our help in the efforts to build a sustainable future for the continent. The key structural changes that are required in relation to Africa have been identified by Carlos Lopez and others. These include changing politics, respecting diversity, understanding policy space, sustainable industrialization, increasing agricultural productivity, building new social contracts, adjusting to climate change, and inserting agency in the relationship with its key partners, especially China. Whatever proposals that are made now and in the future must accept that it is past time that the residues of the imperialist mindset be eschewed from informing assumptions in policies, diplomacy and scholarship. 
We must get to a new place. We have to craft a new a space of hope if we are to achieve change and to do it together. For we have seen in our world a, a profound erosion of solidarity. It is a valuant test of our practices, the solidarity test, that we must re-establish urgently across all our peoples and our policies. I think of philosophers such as Charles Rorty, who have offered insights with regard to how societies can develop more solidarity with those less fortunate in a humanitarian context, and a human rights approach grounded in the notion of empathy, one that offers hope. Thinking in rationalist terms solely will not solve humanitarian problems. It is empathy that fills that gap that human practitioners know in the field or at the front line when they encounter contradictions between their learned theoretical models and the demands for the urgently needed in response to crisis. An empathy that enables the practitioner to continue to function when models are failing. Working within the human rights discourse and practice on the framing of a global sense of empathy, teaching empathy in our curricula so as to better understand others' suffering would be so valuable. For it is clear that empathy is missing in so much of the discourse regarding humanitarianism and migration interventions. But empathy in turn must have a point of reference and accountability. And we have other resources. There is a great resource in the literature of the capacity of the wounded healer. Available too is the great resource of those neglected ancient shared cultural sources of crisis response, conflict prevention and resolution. Problem solving is after all not a recently invented practice in human history. There is much to be recovered. It is understandable that in the 18th and 19th centuries, Europeans' desire for natural resources, slave labor, and political dominance, just that they disrupted traditional ways and imposed their beliefs and social structures on colonized Africans, Latin Americans, and many others. The great hubris. The long-term effects of this imperialism included widespread racial discrimination and economic exploitation, but also, and it's neglected, cultural suppression. And recognizing that legacy would be a powerful preparation for a new beginning. And wouldn't it be a clearing of the ground, as it were, for new work together? And in all of this, the dissenting voice is a valuable voice, and one that should be encouraged by the fact that we, there have always been brave exceptions to the prevailing exploitations. It includes those, for example, who stood against the excesses, the hubris of a European Enlightenment gone wrong when it had lent itself to imperialism, colonization, and at times genocide. So we can take courage from an array of European political thinkers and other thinkers who attack the very foundations of such imperialism arguing passionately that empire building was not only unworkable, costly and dangerous, but manifestly unjust, immoral. Thinkers such as Diderot, Kant, Herder understood and developed an understanding of humans as inherently cultural agents and therefore necessarily diverse. These thinkers rejected the conception of any culture-free natural man, they held that moral judgments of superiority 
or inferiority could be made neither about entire peoples nor about many distinctive cultural institutions and practices. How sad it is to find ourselves resiling to so much of this in the speeches we will hear this week. Such arguments in turn enabled the era's anti-imperialists to defend the freedom of non-European peoples, their right to order their own societies. And this continues to have a powerful resonance for us today as we face the developmental challenges in Africa, Latin America and elsewhere. Such thinking as they and we might have interweaves commitments to universal moral principles and incommensurable ways of life and is one that links the concept of a shared human nature with the idea of a fundamental human diversity. Such an intellectual temperament can so broaden our own perspectives about international justice and the relationship between human unity and diversity. I finish by telling you that there is good news on the way. Good scholarship is underway. I think of scholars like Alicia Barasena Ibarra, Executive Secretary of the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, who is among those scholars and practitioners who have spoken authoritatively on the practical challenges facing Africa, focusing on the role of technology and knowledge sharing. The paradigm shift needed to move towards a new development paradigm and to implement the Sustainable Development Goals, she argues, requires a new global and regional technological governance that focuses on capacities and knowledge. The governance of technology and how it is to be structured is crucial. For history has shown us in so many examples that to achieve best, even benign results, market forces cannot be left to act on their own volition in this regard. Cooperation, another of our neglected founding values, remains the great alternative to extreme individualism. It is also critical as an instrument for achieving long-lasting change and fairness, truth and communication. Collective action and cooperation are essential if we are to take advantage of and give shape to the technological revolution in such a way for it to be delivered for universal human benefit rather than as a means of aggression or as a tool of war or as a source of corruption. This means that a South-South resourced cooperation utilizing modern modes of communication is fundamental and we should all welcome and assist it. And a considerable number of developing countries have developed capacities that can be shared for use by other countries. But what is clear, however, is that the development of these transformations requires the joint work of governments, the private sector and civil society to ensure that new trends are aligned with what is set forth in the 2030 Agenda, and importantly, that they are proofed as to purpose and delivery, so that they do not, even inadvertently, produce or deepen greater inequality. Marfocal Square, to finish, it is now 50 years since Irishman Erskine Barton Childers wrote so persuasively on the topic of development, social change and communication an Assistant Deputy Secretary of the, of the United Nations. In a paper Childers wrote about the United Nations entitled Whose Whispers Are in the Gallery, he expanded on the importance of communication in the context of dangers facing the global village, should it not actively foster greater knowledge and understanding of peoples and their aspirations beyond the frontiers of the West. 
if modern transnational public communications only perpetuates ignorance, strengthens disinformation, exacerbates tensions, it may prove more dangerous to peace and the rule of international law. Better the world was without it. And in a section of a paper entitled Amnesia After Midnight, he was referring to the time when he was working in Africa for the BBC and they would happen in a stadium and the lights would go out. You wouldn't see the plaque of empire going down. And then the lights would come up and the new flag of the new state would come up. And Mr. Day would say, and a new country joins the ranks of free countries, free to make its own mistakes. Mr. Childers objected and lost his job. But in he remains in that paper he wrote, Amnesia After Midnight. Erskine Childers refers to double amnesia in daily reports and commentaries on countries in the South. He describes how an amnesia exists and involves total forgetfulness on the part of the developed world, of the condition in which the colonised developing world was left upon their regaining independence. It involves forgetfulness of how long in some respects, how very short in others, has been the comparable experience of developed countries themselves. I emphasise this point on the importance of communication, as I believe it has become highly relevant in the current context of the re-emergence of stereotypical depictions of migrants and displaced individuals from poorer developing parts of our planet, depictions that emanate too frequently from the destructive rhetoric of the most powerful, seeking to galvanise vulnerable, often desperate and marginalised groups with a language of fear of the other that is often racist, xenophobic and grounded in hatred, fear and ignorance. These are depictions that have no basis in fact, rationality or reality or human discourse and that offends against our very humanity and that of others. And we now require actions, actions on climate, migration and broader development. However, humanitarian actions must, any long, must not any longer be allowed to serve as any alternative sufficient response to crises that are political and structural in their origins. Structure matters. Humanitarian action is not a substitute for the crucial political dialogue and mediation that must address structural change. Allow me to repeat that what we now require is a new political economy based on a pluralistically thought political, social and economic theory, one that moves from a sole reliance on extreme rationalism to policies derived from a paradigm incorporating human empathy, a paradigm that has sought and secured legitimacy among diverse citizenries, one that everyone comprehends, founded on principles of ethics, ecology and equality, one that will serve the interests of all and not the narrow interests of the few, who benefit from our current doomed model based as it is on insatiable consumption. A sense of justice not only for now, but for the future requires that the capacity and power of all of our residual sense of shared humanity be invoked to give us the energy to reconnect our lives through a balanced relationship between ecology, ethics, economy, culture, and a lived and a lived experience of fulfilment and joy and reciprocity. We must respond with urgency, 
or we run the risk of correctly being regarded by future survivors of our endangered planet as having been in collusion with the destruction of the lives and life worlds of some of the most vulnerable peoples of our human family and the biodiversity on which our very planetary life depends. Let us commit ourselves to the mind work involved. Listen to the music of the heart we might share so that we may anticipate experience together the change and joy that will come to us and future generations in a sustainable, harmonious world. Mila Buikas, Karamila Mark.